Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. And uh, we are here in the midst of a series we've been doing for some time now. Grateful to have three folks around the table. We've been taking a look at uh, important heroes in the Bible, in particular folks who are uh, women in the Bible of Old and New Testament. And in the course of our series, we've covered folks who have books of their own, like uh, Ruth and Esther. We've got uh, stories of people who are really, really important and show up in lots of books, like Mary Magdalene or Mary the Mother of Jesus. And today we're taking a slightly different turn. Uh, Sarah, tell us where we're headed today. So today we are looking at a couple of women who are mentioned just very briefly sometimes even for just a single verse in the entire New Testament. But they had big roles in the early church, such as Junia, who was a woman apostle, and Phoebe and Chloe and all kinds of co-workers in the gospel. Okay, so, uh, I mean, first off, I'm, I'm going to guess that uh, if folks uh, who have been listening uh, or, or catching any of these will likely know the names we've covered so far up mm-hmm. to this point. Most people have heard of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Most people have heard of Mary Magdalene if you have shown up at an Easter service ever in your life. And there's a decent chance that you will, at least if you've looked at the table of content in your Bible, have heard of Ruth or Esther. Um, but now we're headed into territory of uh, people whose names might not even be known. And, and maybe there's a church history reason why sometimes their names weren't even <laughs> even known, right? So let's let's start with uh, Junia. You mentioned first off uh, yeah. that the first woman apostle. Tell us where, where do we even find this person's reference. So first of all, let's not assume she's the first woman apostle. All right, all right. she's uh, the one that we have heard of. All right, because well, she is mentioned in the book of Romans. Okay, she she's in Romans sixteen seven. Uh, Greet and a crot crot and a crot. I'm going to guess Andronicus. There we go. Andronicus (laughs) and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They were prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. That is from the New Revised Standard Version. So, to set the scene, we're at the tail end of Romans, and in this letter, uh, like Paul will often do, and like, Mm -hmm. like... first century epistolary kind of letters work, after you are done with the meat of what you have to say, you get to sort of the greetings and small talk kind of stuff. And so often in Paul's letters, the, what we will identify as the last chapter, because we even later on added these things, and sort of now we start talking to people he knows. And that's what's happening. He's sort of rattling off names of people that he knows uh, in whatever city the letter is intended for. And so he names uh, among a whole a whole list of people, other people you may have heard of, Prisca and Asquala make the list earlier. There's other people who get mentioned in chapter 16, but then in this one verse, greet Andronicus and Junium, and he names them not only relatives of his, so somehow they're like kinfolk of his, but also names them as prominent among the apostles, and that suggests he's categorizing this Andronicus and Junia in whatever he means by apostles, they're in that group, that they're in that category, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, all right, uh, why, why does that make a big deal? Why, why aren't we having a conversation about all the other people listed in chapter 16? Well, because Junia is a woman. And, okay. And so in this culture, this is not typically what we would find. You know, most of the apostles we think of, even to the day, when we think about the apostles, they're all men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even um, in the past, in, in translating this text, people have tried to make Junia 
into a man because yeah. they can't get their minds around the fact that this is a woman that yeah. Paul is talking about. So, okay, so this is one of those places where the the muddiness or the challenge of, of the Greek is a factor. There's also layers of church history where mm-hmm. once you come with a presupposition, well, they're not allowed to be women leaders, therefore, if the text says something that makes me think there's a woman leader, it, that can't be right. And there have been translations over the years, big name translations sometimes, that have said, well, this can't be... Junia, a woman, it must be somebody else, and they invent a name Junius, even though there's no record of any first century men named <laughs> Junius. Uh, and, or sometimes you'll get some fudging with the rest of the sentence of, well, Junia, whoever she was, was known to the apostles, but uh-huh. she can't be one of them, that kind of thing, right? Uh-huh. So we've had in church history, in the 2,000 years that people have been reading these scriptures, sometimes where people's presuppositions were so powerfully strong that, oh, there certainly can't be any women leaders. They were willing to uh, do things to a text that shouldn't be done to a dog, to borrow that old line of, I think, Spurgeon's. Um, that uh, they turned Junia, who's clearly that's a, it's a female name, uh, mm-hmm. and made, well, she, she can't be an apostle. She must, this must be a man named Junius, even though we've never heard that name before. Uh, or uh, she must be known to the apostles. not. But the, the text itself doesn't go there, right, Sarah? Right, and I think it's important to keep in mind that all of this fudging with the text came later. Mm-hmm. It for the first couple hundred years that this letter was circulating in the early church, Junia was a woman and she was prominent among the apostles. Um, one of the church early fathers, John, how do you pronounce that? Oh, uh, John Chrysostom. Yeah, that guy. Um, he wrote about Junia and he was, he said, to be an apostle is something great, but to be a, outstanding among the apostles just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. That, that's a really, really important insight. That as Paul's writing this, he doesn't think that the big headline is woman apostle. He thinks the headline is Junia is really awesome among all the apostles I've worked with. She's a really, really important mm-hmm. one. She and Andronicus, man, they do a great job. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they're also my relatives. And they came to Christ before I did. So the, it's funny how over enough church history, the things that make other people get all fussy were not issues for the original writer, for, for Paul, who seems to think the headline is, Junie does a great job at being an apostle, mm-hmm. not, what? There's a woman <laughs> apostle. Maybe part of the hang-up, too, is that um, we sometimes treat that word apostle, and again, this is a later church history thing, like, like Sarah mentioned, um, in this sort of codified way, like, this was from day one, like from Easter Monday, a hard and fixed codified you know, dictionary definition like a title, when really the word apostle it comes from the, the Greek word to, to be sent. It, it's mm-hmm. a word that the people who got sent. So we even talked before, when we talked about Mary Magdalene, that she's, in a sense, the apostle to the apostle. She's the first one who ever announces the news of the resurrection. Without her, Peter and James and John don't know about Jesus' resurrection. And so... Even just the sense of someone who's being sent, uh, when Jesus sends out 70 people early in his earthly ministry, they're called you know, the sent ones, the apostles. Uh, that's a broader community, and somewhere along the way, 
that got codified and do know there's only 12, and sometimes you'll get churches. Well, there's only the 12 apostles, and even Paul's existence sort of pushes it at it. And you know, Paul will say, mm-hmm. I'm an apostle, by the way, and I'm not one of those 12. Like, Paul had, Paul is one of those voices that reminds us before he codified <laughs> this into 12 men with beards, these are the guys of the apostles. Paul goes, nah, wider <laughs> definition is required. So if we're defining apostle as somebody who's being sent, and specifically someone who's being sent to proclaim the good news or to share the gospel, yeah. would Phoebe then be an apostle? I think in a lot of ways, yeah. So mm-hmm. here's another woman who gets mentioned in chapter 16 of Romans, again while Paul's rattling off personal greetings. And the opening verse of what we call chapter 16 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Cancreae, uh, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints. It seems likely that she's the one actually physically carrying the letter. We, we sometimes mm-hmm. picture the New Testament letters like, you know, we're putting the mail or something like that, but there is no Roman imperial mail system. It's you write something down, you get, hey, your friend, oh, you're already going to be going to Rome? Would you take this letter along? And so it's likely then that Phoebe already a leader in some form of the congregation or house church where Paul's writing from. Cancrea, I think, is a port city outside of Corinth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so she's physically carrying this letter, and then is most likely the one, when she gets to Rome, who's, like, reading this out loud for the first time. Because, again, we sort of picture, mm-hmm. you know, everybody said, oh, let's turn to Romans in our Bibles. No, nobody has a Bible. The Bible is coming to them in the hands of somebody who's come from the Apostle. And these are... L- public readings in whatever house churches they're gathering in. So likely Phoebe's the one carrying the good news, not only physically carrying it in her hands, but also then when she gets there, the one likely reading it out loud and giving whatever notes, you know, when Paul says, mm-hmm. ah, be careful, you know, when you get to chapter 12 here, I, I make sure you read it this way, not that way, that kind of thing. That Phoebe's the one likely first interpreting Romans. So she might have been the, not only the first uh, uh, apostle mentioned in chapter 16 beating out Junia by six verses uh, but she also might have been the first to preach a sermon on Romans <laughs> as well uh, so yeah th- that, that idea of being an apostle is this broader sense that later on uh, for, for good or for ill uh, official religious institution Christianity codifies into this select group, oh by the way there's only 12 of them because mm-hmm. we like the, the roundness of the number 12 instead of this amorphous cloud of them but I think that raises a really important question too, uh, let me pose this to both of you. Um, in a sense then, to be to be the church, I mean, we, we, we uh, in our tradition, we, we uh, use the words of one of the creeds like every Sunday, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, Nicene mm-hmm. Creed, but they have this recurring phrase about the church is holy, catholic, and apostolic. And that mm-hmm. idea of the church being apostolic, I think one sense of that is it's supposed to be, you know, carrying on in the faith that was handed down from the apostles, you know, that cloud of whoever, whether there's 12 or a bunch of them. But I wonder if we're missing that another piece of that is that to be the church faithfully is always to be the sent church, always to be going out into mm-hmm. the world, not mm-hmm. just the club of you come here and if you get in the door, we'll, we'll let you in, that kind of thing. But the picture is the church, to be faithfully the church is always supposed to be sent out and maybe less worried about the official title that goes with it. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. I think, especially now in our culture, you know, people aren't coming to the church uh-huh. unless they were kind of raised that way and brought up and... And they see the advantage of coming to church. They're we'll not just hot gonna, dogs afterwards. People want to come for hot well, dogs. yeah, they'll come for food. Um, but you know, they're not going to just come into the church. And so the church must go out to them. Right. And really, that's how the church began. Right. The church right. did not start in a building. 
this is the thing that gets me sometimes. You know, in this era that we live in, sometimes you'll hear people sort of bemoaning <coughs> they they long for some glorious heyday the way when they think the church was you know perfect or great or grand. Mm. Often they imagine it was the 1950s for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, people tell stories. You know, that our Sunday schools were booming, and you know, people just came flocked to us, and it was just sort of growth by you know suburban. You know, as as our towns were growing, people were moving into them. Then that's the, the what church, you did on Sunday. Yeah, you know? and. That it was, you know, a new a new family moves to town. They went to the Lutheran church before in their old town, so automatically it was sort of a lock. Ah, the Lutherans will come to our church and the Methodists come to their church and will grow simply because of urban sprawl. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not how the church began, and that's so that that's a, like this weird blip in church history. And that if we really are concerned about, you know, going back to the essentials of the core of the foundations. You know, for at least 300 years, we were meeting in house churches underground, uh, risking getting fed to lions, and people daily were risking their lives running from one place to another to tell the good news that Jesus was alive again. That's a really different picture than we'll sit here, keep the doors open, and assume people will come to us. From the beginning, the church was supposed to be this apostolic in the sense of being sent. Mm-hmm. We, were, we, we gathered to get the resources we need, and then out we go, out the door, to go bring the news to other people. My former bishop, um, Bishop Bickerton, used to always say when he was making appointments at annual conference, you know, you were not just appointed to the church, which you're at, you're appointed to that community. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so he was, he was reminding us every year at annual conference with every district that was called up that we are called to be, you know, pastors to the community and not just to our individual church, which means we have to go outside the church building. Yeah. We have to go outside our walls and meet the people of our community. Yeah. That's huge, because I think sometimes that notion of being sent to be leaders in a community uh, has been taken, again, over 2,000 years, we can get it pretty wrong, uh, has been taken sometimes as a sort of a territoriality thing, like, hey, you're not allowed on my church, this is my church, so anything that happens here, I'm the pastor. And they're like, no, that's not the idea. It's mm-hmm. This is the community, so whether they're a member of your church or not, if it's a thing going on in your community, if there's a crisis, if there's a, mm-hmm. a, a tragedy, if there's a trauma, if there's something to celebrate, yeah, you're sent into that place to be a part of what's going on in the life there rather than letting this be about turf. And we have this mm-hmm. way of getting very, very fussy about turf wars and things like that when that's clearly not what's going on in Paul's world, right? Yeah. So, okay, so we've got uh, these two women who are, if, if you just read the plain sense of the text of, of Romans 16, are women who are important enough to Paul that he entrusts them and doesn't think it's a big deal. He doesn't, like, make a note and say, I'm trying Phoebe out. You know, most of the time I trust, you know, John, Mark, or Luke, but I guess this time I'll... Like, it's not a big deal to him. Mm -hmm. This is one of those times to me, the fact that Paul doesn't call attention to this is evidence that this is, like, regular, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, like, this is how Paul did ministry. Sometimes men get the letter, sometimes women get the letter. You go take it, you go preach Mm -hmm. it. By the way, Andronicus, yep, he's an apostle. Junius, she's an apostle. This is the, the ordinariness is the cool thing to me. That like for him, this is like every yeah, of course, ministry that includes men and women. That, that and and the fact that they just sort of naturally rolled into these roles as a church was figuring out how to be the church. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's cool. Uh, but there's uh, another woman that we had mentioned. You mentioned in, in the intro, Sarah Chloe, uh, who shows up again. She gets one one verses worth of mention, but it suggests that there's a lot going on there. Right. So where where do we go to find Chloe's story? So. Chloe is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses, well, she's really in verse 11, but you kind of need verse 10 to kind of get a full sense of what's going on. But Paul says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you should be in agreement and that there should be no divisions among you, but that you should be united in the same mind and the same purpose. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there were quarrels among you. So, um, this is the one reference we get, but the situation is, as Paul, who's hanging out, uh, wherever he's hanging out, uh, and is writing to the church in Corinth, uh, which is a pretty fractured group of probably house churches, so even calling it the church is sort of an overstatement. Uh, Paul doesn't even call them, he calls them to the, uh, what he, the, called to be the saints, and he sort of, he notices that they're kind of fractured there. Um, but, uh... There, he's got this report about what's going on in Corinth, and it's come to him by way of people who are connected with somebody named Chloe. Mm -hmm. Now, like, the fact that Paul doesn't stop and say, for people 2,000 years from now who are wondering who Chloe is, I mean, he doesn't give that, because he assumes his readers know, one, who Chloe is, mm -hmm. and he doesn't even have to give a last name. Like, we talked about, there's all these Marys floating around, and he doesn't, you know, like, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of so-and-so, that everybody knows, oh yeah, Chloe, everybody knows Chloe. Um... And that somehow she's of enough significance in the church in Corinth that all he's got to do is name drop and go, you know what Chloe's people told me? And all of a sudden, like, he's got mm -hmm. their attention, right? And Which I find remarkable because Corinth is not a small town. Yeah. Corinth is kind of this hub of trade and, you know, it's a port city, isn't it? Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's not small. It's pretty big. And yet, you know, you just have to mention, oh, yeah, Chloe's people. And you all know who... Chloe is. Yeah, like like I picture this uh, like when when uh, I'm talking to my kids and they're getting a little bit out of line and I say things like, "Boy, I wonder what happened if," and I mention their teacher's name. You know, I wonder what, what Mrs. Jones would would see what you're at, and all of a sudden I get their attention like this. Oh man, like you, I don't have to say anything else. I don't have to make a threat. Just sort of, I wonder, or I, you know, you know, I had a conversation with Mrs. Smith today. Oh my goodness, and just and like it's got this feel like he didn't have to say anything more. He just like you know what Chloe's people. People are telling me, and all of a sudden, like, oh, we've been found out. We're acting like jerks <laughs> for each other. Um, now, it, it also seems likely that um, you're talking about a leader of a probably house church. I mean, again, mm -hmm. like you say, Corinth is a big city in the ancient world, and uh, as a sort of a, a, a major metropolitan area with lots of suburbs, Cancri is one of them, I think, too. Uh, you get. Um, probably several clusters, groups of Christians meeting in different people's houses. So it's quite possible, again, as the early church is figuring out how to be church. They're not all meeting in church buildings. We didn't get buildings for a long time. <laughs> and side note, we did just fine. <laughs> um, before we get all fussy about the importance of stained glass or bricks and mortar. But, so it's likely some Christians are meeting at Chloe's house uh, and that she's like one of the leaders of this mm -hmm. community's house church. Um, that, that again suggests to me like that the early church just sort of took it as a given as they were trying to figure out, oh, you know the news about Jesus? Good. You're empowered. You start telling people. And that it was, it was much less, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you have two X chromosomes, you're ineligible. But like whoever was available, whoever was, uh, whoever was around, you know the gospel? Good. Tell it to people around you. And you got a house? You're willing to let us meet in your, in your atrium? Fantastic. Your house. You're the leader. Um, and it was much less sort of this rigorous, uh, did you get your theology straight? You know, how many years mm -hmm. did you go to grad school for this kind of a thing? And I think the fact that it's Chloe's house, not, you know, her husband's house, not, you know, she owns this property. She owns this area in which right. they're meeting, and which shows that she's a prominent woman. When we talked about Mary Magdalene, we talked right. about some of the, right. the women that walked with Jesus, you know. Obviously, they had made a name for themselves yeah. and had money, which is, again, uncommon for this time period. Yeah. And now you've got this woman running this house church. Right. And so, 
obviously she's got some power. She's got some influence in Corinth. Right, and, that, and that's an important piece too. That, that he doesn't say, you know, I heard from Chloe and Phil's people. No, no, it's just I heard from Chloe's people as though mm-hmm. this is like... Chloe is the big name here. There are other times in the New Testament, just to make sure that we're not inventing a point in the argument from silence. There are times where Paul will name a couple, and those names always go together, and you get the impression... Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, Prisca, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, or there's other times where... Um, uh, boy, who, who are the, the two who um, uh, die after they pretend uh, Ananias oh, and fire? Yeah, So yeah. Like, there's two... There's some, they're, they're, not all, they're not all heroes. Um, but there, there are pairs that go together in, uh-huh. in, in the New Testament witness. They're like, oh, Oh, yeah, you know, the Joneses, Mr. and Mrs., you know. But the fact that we get, I heard from Chloe's people, or the way that Lydia stands out in Acts, or, mm-hmm. or again, the way, Ju- uh, I mean, Junia gets paired with Andronicus, whether they're husband and wife or brother and sister or whatever, there's a pairing there. But here we get Chloe stands on her own, as though everybody goes, yeah, Chloe's the big name here, and that she's important enough. The other thing that I think is really cool, uh, in the very, very next verse after what you read to us uh, earlier, Sarah, uh, there in the opening uh, chapter, after uh, Chloe's report is that there's quarrels, Paul goes on to say, because you guys are splitting yourself into factions, and all the names that go along with the factions are, are men. He goes, some people say, I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And Paul, it's almost like Paul's life, and it's interesting to me that Chloe doesn't get named as one of the other people leading the division. That it's not like, well, the Chloe's people are against the Paul people, but like, Chloe had the good enough sense to say, unity is important, you jerks. Um, <laughs> then you guys are all dividing yourselves along the lines of the Paul faction, the Apollos faction, and it seems to me like part of the appeal to Chloe is, whatever her role was, that he doesn't see her as part of the problem of, you know, well, Chloe's just as bad, like, they don't get to do that sort of, well, what about Chloe? And her, Chloe's apparently not part of the problem. If he can say, Chloe's the one reminding me, you guys are all acting like jerks toward each other and dividing along lines of who brought you into the faith. Um, it, it, that, that says something to me, even, even though we don't have a word written down from Chloe's mouth, we don't have a record of any of her teachings or preachings or books on Amazon or anything, but we, th- it seems to me that she's this voice that whatever it is she says to Paul, he feels like he can trust her on the side of, trust, trust Chloe in this, you guys need to be getting along with each other, mm-hmm. um, even though everybody else is looking for lines and parties to, to divide along. It, that that while this is not directly about Chloe, it seems to me a moment that's worth calling attention to. Any any time I spend time in Corinthians, seems like it's worth saying out loud um, that from the beginning, like from generation one or two, the church was at the risk of falling apart. You mm-hmm. know, uh, again, we sometimes have this this picture in our heads when we're doing these imaginings about the glory days. Is that you know, once upon a time we all agreed about everything, and it was just a, you know, and we pick whatever the issue is of the day that we're upset about. And man, now everybody's fighting, and how come we can't be like that? And then we pick whatever the time is our golden age when we all got along. And Paul has this reminder, like from AD sixty five, maybe the church was was divided and fracturing, and here it wasn't even on particular, you know, a theological or, or a doctrinal matters, it's just, they happen, well, we're the Paul Christians, and we're the Apollos Christians, and we're the Cephas Christians, and from the beginning, we were territorial jerks, um, and then on top of that, we found things to fight about doctrinally, and the mm-hmm. church had to wrestle with, our our Gentiles allowed and is Gentiles, so they have to become Jewish, I mean, there's, we found new, new exciting things to fight about from the very beginning, too, but it says to me that it's not, we don't get permission to pick some magical time in the past in our memory that is really from our imagination, not from our memory, mm-hmm. uh, and say, that's when it was all perfect, uh, and now we blame, and then we pick whoever we want to blame, usually, oh, those people on the other side, because they don't agree with me. Um, and Paul's attitude here isn't, 
just get in line, here's the one right answer. But Paul constantly has this way of bear with each other. And if you think you're the one who's right and the other person's the one who's weak, well, make room for the people you don't agree with, for crying out loud. And it says to me that Chloe's a part of that, like from the beginning. Paul, Paul trusts Chloe's one of these people who gets it. And so we can just say, Chloe's people sees you guys falling apart. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. And that she carried enough weight and heft in her authority that all he has to do is name drop Chloe. All right, um, so we spent uh, a fair amount of time talking about names that uh, maybe people had not heard before, uh, or at least didn't know were figures in the New Testament. Um, let me ask, are, are there takeaways uh, for like us living life in the church and as followers of Jesus 2,000 years later, are there things that would be helpful takeaways for these, in particular these three women, or the countless other people who don't even get a name drop in the New Testament, but who surely were a part of the leadership behind the scenes? Are there things that, that guide us as we consider their witness too? I think a big one for me is that God doesn't use just men to spread the gospel or to mm-hmm. lead the church. Yeah. That, you know, way back when the church was forming, women had a role in the church. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, oh, you're the one that has to go and make the soup for <laughs> right. Which is important, right. but that's not the only role that women can play. Right. Um, they were apostles, they were leaders, they were shakers and movers in the church. Yeah, yeah. And that suggests, at the very least, that while there may need to be a conversation at some point, whether we address it in a podcast or not, uh, about what do we do with texts that have been used to say that women aren't allowed to leadership, that it seems like in the broader sweep of the New Testament, if we're seeing in multiple letters, place after place after place, here are women in leadership, that whatever particular verses have to do with women's leadership or whether there are limits or whatever in one context or another, for what, or these particular women were trouble women or something like that, uh, that those have to be read in light or against the bigger backdrop mm-hmm. of it. It seems like the norm in the New Testament church was women leadership alongside men's leadership and this wasn't a big fuss, this wasn't a big deal and that if there were pockets where this was an issue in this moment or this situation that's got to be read in context but that the norm seems to be again just reading by the daily life detail kind of things that show up in Paul's letters that women's leadership was a was sort of, a, yeah of course yeah because we all hands on deck sort of mm-hmm. thing uh, and that, that that maybe gives us direction about how you give weight to different passages you know uh, do we have to edit out Junia's name because we've got other verses we're committed to that mu- we, we assume mean women can't be leaders or do we go the text seems to say Junia is an apostle maybe I should be reading the rest of my other verses in light of Junia was an apostle. We'll deal with that. Uh, Phoebe's the one carrying and preaching Romans the first time. That that has to do the rel- the, the other verses have to be read in, read in that context, maybe. And for me, um, while Phoebe is called a deacon and, and Junia is called an apostle, those terms at that point don't mean what they mean now. Yeah, you know, so they don't hold the the depth of the title that those mm-hmm. terms mean today. So I'm kind of almost seeing all three of these women as lay people. Mm-hmm. You know, where you have, like, Paul, like, the preacher, and then all the rest of them are lay people. And so the importance of the lay people in sharing the good news of the gospel, making sure it's getting out there and leading within the local church. Uh, Because so often, especially from that generation we were talking about earlier, from the 50s and 60s, when it was the pastor did everything, Mm -hmm. and the people just kind of sat and, you know, did all the behind the scenes kind of thing. No, the laity need to be just as involved in sharing the good news and, and advancing the kingdom 
as, as the three of us and our colleagues are as pastors. Sure, sure. And, and like, the, one of the things that comes along with that picture we sometimes have of whatever the golden age is in our minds or imaginations is we tend to assume, you know, the right model is the, the churchgoers are, like, paying uh, audience members, like, going to a movie theater, mm-hmm. and they go and expect the, the pastor, sure. you know, who has the authority, but they perform, and if we think they do a good job, we give them more money, and if we don't think they do a good like, that's a very sort of customer-centered mm-hmm. sort of a, I, if I like what I hear, I continue to make my contribution, and the early church totally didn't, that wouldn't make sense at all. It, they didn't get to see Paul very often, so Paul would write letters, and they would show up, well, mm-hmm. A handful of times even letters would show up, and that meant that instead it would fall to whoever was in the local house church who had been appointed. In, and again, it's not like appointed like this. It's very complicated. It was, Chloe, it's your house. You know about Jesus. You heard the stories. You hung out with Paul. Tell us what you know. Mm-hmm. And they would gather. Again, it, it, it's, it's such a different picture, and it's not a paying customers, and if I like what I hear, I pay more. I belong to that club. Or if I don't like it, I'll change my, my gym membership and go to this church over there. But there is this sense of we can't help but keep gathering with each other, and whoever's around to help bring the word to us, everybody, you know, all hands on. It really was all hands on deck. It reminds me of the circuit rider days of, of my <laughs> of my denomination when yeah. when you know a preacher would only get to a church maybe maybe once a month, mm-hmm. you know, and so every other Sunday out of the month, the people would you know the lady would gather together, the lady would read scripture, they would you know speak to one another and teach one another and then eventually the preacher shows up and does the communion and all that and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. again you go for months on you know a month or months on end without a preacher there yeah and it, it seems likely <clears throat> too i mean not even to, to to stretch this even further uh but again the evidence seems to be in the new testament that christians gathered weekly and were celebrating some form of what we call the lord's supper like as part mm-hmm. of their regular weekly gatherings this seems to be the norm in the new testament um, and then again, that suggests if you don't have Paul there every week, you've got like, okay, we're getting together for a meal. This is, this is a mm-hmm. lot less fancy pants and a lot more like, this is our daily lifeblood. We gather, tell us a story again, we'll break the bread again. And this is how people are brought into the story, uh, uh of who Jesus is and what Jesus mm-hmm. is about. And, and again, we have this way of making this much more like a show and it was much more like gathering together for the family meal, uh, except it was this strange new kind of family where women and men and old and young and Jew and Gentile and free and slave were all there around the table. Um, that's a really cool picture, and maybe it's worth recovering. And I guess I, I hope that as people have followed along with us, um, that there's all sorts of things to discover in the New Testament um, that are hidden in sort of the, hidden in plain sight, as mm-hmm. the, these are snapshots of ordinary, regular life in the early church that sometimes we skip past because nobody's embroidered on a pillow for us, or it's not one of those, you know, verses that is, you know, that anybody's ever turned to a new hymn or put on a mug, but that these verses give us the snapshot of something genuine and beautiful going on in the early New Testament church that's worth recovering, and that there were lots of leaders, lots of people who were servant leaders in the early church, even if we don't name churches after them now. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, more adventures to come next time around. Uh, hope you all have enjoyed the conversation, and we invite you to dig in your scriptures yourself and see what other lesser-known names you might find and what things you can learn about them. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you later. Bye.